You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Um, well, a little bit of context, because last week we had such a large chunk of text. This week we have a little chunk of text. Um, last week in the text you saw... Uh, in in Luke 1 earlier, an angel of the Lord appear to these different groups of people, to um, Mary and Joseph, of course, to talk about Jesus being born, and then they appeared to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And to Zechariah and Elizabeth, they the, the angel was proclaiming um, that John the Baptist would be born, um, and, and John the Baptist is to be this proclaimer of Christ, proclaimer of the Messiah. So um, the, the angel visits Zechariah and Elizabeth in verse 6 tells us that these were, this was a couple that was blameless, it says. It says they were righteous before the Lord. They were, they were in good standing. Zechariah worked at the temple. And we're also told in that narrative that they can't conceive, that they're unable to have a child. They can't bear a child. Um, and so when this angel appears to Zechariah, the angel says, behold, my name is Gabriel, and I've come on behalf of the Lord, and you and your wife, your wife Elizabeth specifically, will conceive, and you'll have a child and name him John. Um, and Zechariah's response in that moment is disbelief. Zechariah says, well, how will this come to pass? I'm, I'm very old, and Elizabeth is very old, and we've been barren our whole lives, and so she can't have children. And Gabriel, the angel, responds with this. It's quite kind of alarming. He says, I have been sent to proclaim to you good news about your son who will proclaim good news. And because of your lack of faith, you will not proclaim anything, the angel says. He makes him mute. He takes away Zechariah's voice, and Zechariah is unable to say anything. And so... On the surface, this is kind of an odd event, right? Like Zechariah is being punished, but it's not this just random punishment. He has his voice taken away because his voice, instead of being used to proclaim the goodness of God, proclaims a lack of faith, this disbelief in God's goodness. And so um, the punishment is fitting, right? It it makes sense, but it's still odd. And I want to ask the question, is this an odd punishment? Is this a cruel punishment from the Lord? Or is it, and this is what I'm going to lay out a case for this morning, is this punishment, and it is a punishment, telling us something about God's kingdom and the proclamation of good news? And I think think it is. Um, Gabriel says in verse 19, the, the angel Gabriel says, I was sent to proclaim good news. And in turn, I would expect you to receive it as good news and proclaim it thus as good news. And instead, when Zechariah expresses that doubt, the angel says, your voice is mine. <laughs> um, so I want to look at another, a couple of uh, examples of what I think are similar events in the Bible where the mouth or the speech of somebody has been affected in the presence of God or God's messenger. Um, first, we're going to turn to Isaiah. So if you have a Bible, turn, turn to Isaiah 6. Um, and as you're turning there, a little context. Isaiah is a prophet. This is thousands of years before Jesus is born. Isaiah is a prophet during the exile. So God's people are being ruled over by other kings. They've been punished for their, really their disbelief in a lot of ways. And, um, and this is, uh, Isaiah 6 is the beginning of this where um, Isaiah visits 
the Lord. In a vision, Isaiah goes to heaven into the throne room of God, and he's spoken to. And this is what it says. Um, In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, which are angels. Each had six wings. With two wings, the angel covered his face. The other two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah's response to all of this is to say, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, one of the angels, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Quite, quite an odd scene here, right? Like Isaiah is in the throne room of God, and as he is experiencing angels praising the Lord and seeing a room filled with the robe of God the King, Isaiah's first and most prominent thought is, woe is me, for my mouth is unclean. What does he mean by that? Well, he, he's, he's pointing to something that's been happening in Jerusalem, or in Israel, rather, for a long time, which is the people with their mouths have been profaning God because they don't believe in him. They don't believe that God can save them. They don't believe that God will do anything. They don't believe that God is God. They've been, they've been expressing a lack of faith in Yahweh. And so they are, as a punishment for this, they are put in exile. But then in this moment, Isaiah's first realization is, because of my mouth, I am unclean. And he says, woe is me, because he expects death. He expects that in the presence of the holy of holies, where angels are singing holy, 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 he says, I'm unclean, and I know what that means. (laughs) When someone unclean comes with somebody perfectly holy, righteous, death is the expectation. And the angel, as a messenger of God, says, fear not, I will make you clean. And he, he puts a hot coal on Isaiah's lips. And Isaiah is, we're told, his sins were atoned for by God in that moment. Um, all throughout the Bible, the image of fire and coals and heat are used to signify the cleaning of the people of God, right? Like we see this whenever the Holy Spirit is present, he's as fire or some manifestation of fire purifying the people of God. And so that's what happens here. The, the burning coal is meant to signify that sin is being burned out of Isaiah's sinful mouth. He's being purified to speak the things of God. And so Isaiah is cleaned, and what does he say? Well, the very next thing that happens is in Isaiah 6, God then says, who will I send? Who will go for me? And he's saying, who will speak for me? Who has the lips that can speak for me? And the answer, Isaiah went from, I'm going to die, to send me. (laughs) I'm ready to go. I'm clean to go. I will go for you. And then if you look in Isaiah 7, what does God send Isaiah to say? He says in Isaiah uh, 7, um, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So Isaiah is, uh, this is what I want us to focus on in this first event. Uh, Isaiah is 
it comes into contact with God, his lips are unclean, largely because of his lack of faith and the people's lack of faith. The Lord saves and cleans Isaiah, and he's sent with a message, which is Jesus. The virgin will conceive, and his name will be God with us. His message is Jesus. So that's one event uh, thousands of years before Jesus was born. Let's look at another event that I think is very similar that happened after Jesus was born, lived, died, rose again, and ascended to heaven. This is Acts 2. And in Acts 2, um, this is right after Jesus has, it's called the ascension. Jesus departed from them and went to heaven. And they're all together in one place. This is what happens in Acts 2, verse 1. Look for some of these. Whoa, I just got really hot on my mic. Uh, look for some of this in uh, some of those symbols again that we saw in Isaiah in chapter 2. It says this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Remember the sound in Isaiah when everything trembled at the sound of the Lord's voice. So a sound like r- mighty rushing wind and the entire house was filled with this sound where they were sitting and, and verse 3, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and with the Holy Spirit, and and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and these tongues of fire rested on them, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then we have this list of all the people who were there, all the nations who were represented there. And then in verse 11, it says, they heard them telling in their own tongues the mighty work of God. They were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And some were mocking them, saying they are filled with a new wine. So, Again, at this point in the journey of Christ's disciples, Jesus has died, he rose again, and he ascended to heaven, and they are in this place together kind of wondering what to do next and certainly what to say next. And the Holy Spirit appears, and he pours himself out on them. He appears with this loud, rumbling noise, and he pours himself out on them, but the way he does it is is symbolically and visually with a tongue or a mouth that's on fire. This should make us think of this similar event to Isaiah. And quick aside, I want to compare this to Jesus' baptism, right? Similar event, the Holy Spirit comes and rests on a person in Christ. In Acts 2, it rests on the people in the room. Uh, The Holy Spirit is there, present. But for Jesus, what does the Holy Spirit look like? Anybody? A dove. You remember this? In, in a couple of the Gospels, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and rests on Jesus. But everywhere else, when the Holy Spirit appears for a human, he appears as fire. Why do you think that is? I'll tell you the answer. Uh, the reason is fire, again, signifies the Holy Spirit's work for those of us in sin, which is to burn out sin, to purify us. For Jesus, what sin is there to burn out? Nothing. There's nothing to burn out. Christ is the sinless one. So when the Holy Spirit descends as a skittish bird, a dove, it's at peace resting on Christ, the sinless one, because Christ is the only man who the Holy Spirit has ever entered and it not been an event of purification. There's nothing to purify out of Jesus. That's, that's a free one. Um, back to <laughs> what's actually going on here. Um, when the men in Acts are emboldened by God and, and filled with the Holy Spirit, um, the Holy Spirit 
comes with a, a symbol of a tongue on fire. He, he's come to purify their speech. And what do they do after that event? It tells us that they proclaim the mighty works of God, namely the mightiest work they've seen and witnessed in their lifetime that Christ lived, died, rose again, and ascended to heaven. They're proclaiming Jesus. They're proclaiming Jesus. It's almost the same as Isaiah. God's spirit is sent to purify someone because of their faith. Fire is involved, and then their mouth proclaims Christ, proclaims Jesus. With that in mind, let's go back to Luke and look at the Zechariah event and see what this is trying to say. It says this, verse 57 of Luke 1. Uh, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and so they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, which is when they would give him a name, and they thought they would call him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, well, well none of your relatives are called by this name, and they made signs to his father, and they, they went to Zechariah, and they kind of said, they wrote, you know, like, what do you want to call him? And Zechariah says, his name is John. His name is John. Very a firm display that, that Zechariah has had time in his muteness to ponder the event with the angel, and therefore he's believed that the angel had proclaimed goodness and truth, and therefore at this moment, he's, his faith is displayed the naming of his son. His name will be John. And fear, uh, well, and immediately they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So, so again, Zechariah was made mute because of his lack of faith. His voice is restored when he displays faith. God restores his voice, and his faith is restored because he, he trusts. It. We, we have a show of his faith being dis, dis, or, uh, restored because he names the child what the angel told him to, John, which means God has been gracious. Um, his doubt... We, we come to find out his doubt made him unfit to proclaim anything. And his faith made him fit to proclaim the goodness of God. The proclamations like Isaiah and like the apostles and like his son John. Um, what are we told that immediately Zechariah does? Well, first we're told he immediately blesses God. And then in the very next section, which we're going to look at in depth next week, it's called Zechariah's Prophecy. Um, he doesn't start by talking about his son, John. He starts by talking about a horn of salvation raised up in the house of David. He starts by talking about Jesus. You would think, in my opinion, that Zechariah would start, would start by being like, Praise the Lord who made me speak again and who, uh, who's given me a son after my wife was barren. My son will be great and do great things. Zechariah does go on to say those things, but he starts his prophecy by saying, the Lord will save his people through the house of David. Jesus is coming. He proclaims the mighty works of God. Um, God raised up a horn of salvation in the house of Jesus. He starts with Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about his son, John. And we're going to get into more about John next week when we talk about this prophecy and who John is and what he has come to do. But I want us to get, give a moment to compare Zechariah with John, right? 
John has, um, has been given the task of proclaiming with his voice Jesus. Zechariah was taken, his voice was taken from him, right? We're supposed to compare the father and the son in this moment. Um, and let's look at John's life. Like, John has a sanctifying moment for his life, too, um, John has a moment that's recorded in Scripture where the Holy Spirit indwells John. And it's not later in life. It's not with some display of faith. It's actually in the womb. Verse 15 of chapter 1 tells us that John was saved uh, in the womb. It says, uh, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So John was saved, and if we're thinking of the formula in Isaiah and in Acts, we would expect the Holy Spirit to come and then a proclamation to be made. Where is John's first proclamation of Christ? It's actually in the womb as well, right? We have this event later where Mary visits Elizabeth, and John in the womb as an infant leaps for joy in the presence of Christ. That's John's first proclamation of the Messiah, So John, even, who was saved in the womb, proclaims Christ in the womb. We have the same formula happening. The Holy Spirit appears, sanctifies a salvific event, and then a proclamation happens. John, in utero, leaps for joy in the presence of the Savior of the world. Compare this to Zechariah. Don't get me wrong here. I identify most out of everybody we've talked about with Zechariah. Like, I'm the one who, if an angel appeared to me and told me something miraculous was going to happen, I would probably say, I don't really rationally think that can happen, right? Like, I think we in the West would, would probably fit most comfortably in the Zechariah character in this story. Um, Zechariah was a, a man of faith. Outwardly, he was righteous. He kept the rules. He worked in the temple. And when the time comes for his faith to be tested, he doubts, Well, John, to contrast, never doubts. He never doubts his role, right? He he proclaims, he's sent to proclaim Christ right up to the point of Christ's baptism. John has his voice from the womb. He uses it to leap for joy in Christ's presence, and he uses his voice all of his life to proclaim that Jesus is the Savior, not him. He says, I can't even touch his feet. His sandals are too holy for me to untie. That is the Savior. That is the Savior. That is the Savior, up until John is beheaded, and his mouth can no longer speak. Zechariah is, is not that. He is this doubter in his old age. Um, his voice is taken until his faith makes him well. But when he gets his voice back, boy, does Zechariah speak. He doesn't speak doubt. Uh, he, he says, this son is named John. God told me that. He says, God is sending a savior for my generation to save his people. He says, my son will get to spend his life proclaiming his goodness until it happens. He says, my son will spend all his days proclaiming and pointing to Jesus. And Zechariah says, so so will I. Zechariah is saved by faith, and as a result, he shouts, he proclaims Jesus. I want to... um, end by this morning by kind of turning to another gospel. This is the gospel of John chapter 1, and and John chapter 1 is going to drive home this idea for us because Jesus does come. Jesus is born, and he lives, and and Jesus proclaims a lot. He teaches a lot about the kingdom of God. He teaches a lot about what it means to follow him and be a Christian and how to be saved and God's heart for his people, but what we celebrate at Christmas, what we proclaim is not primarily Christ's message or a message of a moral code to follow. It's simply Jesus himself. That's what 
John 1 is getting at. And that's why the proclamation that Isaiah, the proclamation that Zechariah, the proclamation that John, the proclamation of the apostles, and your proclamation and my proclamation is, is ultimately and primarily and eternally Jesus. Jesus. Here's what John 1 says. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not and will not overcome it. And verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Christ is the proclamation. Christ is the word. He came to proclaim himself. Everything else in history swirls around him. But for God to come to earth, to put on flesh and dwell among us, that is the proclamation of the word. The word came down. That's what we proclaim primarily, ultimately, eternally. We proclaim Christ. Of course, that has to do with what he did, who he is. And we can, we can follow the pattern because for those in the room who have placed their faith in Jesus, you have been given that Holy Spirit as of fire, right? And, and the Holy Spirit is working. Your faith has saved you. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying you and burning sin away from your mouth to do what? To go and proclaim, to go and tell it on the mountain as the Christmas song says that Jesus Christ is born, that the Messiah is born, that the world has a Savior, that there's light in the darkness, the word of God, God himself became flesh and dwelt among men. He lived the life of righteousness. He drank the cup of wrath and death on the cross. He rose in victory over death in a new body, the first new body of all new bodies. And he ascended and sits even now on a throne and is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory forever. That's why the angels have one task at the throne room. They sing forever. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They cover their faces because his glory is too bright for them. And so my question that I'll leave us with is, are you in the Christmas spirit? And I don't mean you need to watch one more Hallmark movie and you'll get there. Although I like Hallmark movies. The Christmas spirit is the spirit of proclamation the spirit of proclaiming to yourself and to others that God is with us, Emmanuel. And so, has that been elusive this year? Has it been a dark year? Are you weary this Christmas? Are you anxious? Are you depressed? Are you mourning? Are you lost? Maybe you've lost your voice. Maybe you need to find your voice. And here's what I know. For those who have faith, God, by his spirit, gives a voice. It's a voice of proclamation. And so, Maybe you need to proclaim this to yourself this morning. I mean, I'm proclaiming it to you, but maybe you need to proclaim it to yourself and treasure up this thing in your heart, as the scripture says, those all over Judea did. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is savior. Jesus lived and was born and became flesh. Jesus loves you. Jesus has not abandoned you. Quite the contrary, Jesus gave up eternity and glory and power and authority to become a baby in an animal stall. Like, 
when I think about my life, so much of my life and my deep longings and, and, and my thoughts are to escape my temporal existence and live eternally. Christ, who lived eternally, gave that up to be bound by time in a body that failed him on the cross. What, uh, <laughs> what could be a better proclamation to myself that not only has God not abandoned me, God has become human to love me and save me and care for me. Because he is the word, because he is God, because he has come to set his people free, he has set you free. That has been an effective proclamation. His task is complete. So we are able to live in the Holy Spirit and proclaim it to ourselves. So I hope that is proclaimed to you again this morning. I hope that you might proclaim it to yourself this week. I hope that you might be able to look at a person in your parish or your renewal group or in your neighborhood and, and proclaim God with us. And I hope that as we come to the table this morning, it's proclaimed again. That as we eat the body and blood of Jesus, we remember the sacrifice and we remember that God is with us. Emmanuel is the Holy Spirit with us now. God is with us and so at Christmas, we get to say Christ is born. We've been saved. And we get to go and tell it on the mountain, over the hills, and everywhere that Jesus is born. Let's proclaim that truth to ourselves and to one another. Let's pray. Jesus, we need your help this morning. We need to remember and proclaim to ourselves that you are God, that you are with us, that you have not abandoned us, that you have done it. Lord, I confess that I doubt that. And I don't want to. Um, Holy Spirit, I invite you to work on me this season to make me reach for joy and hope and assurance and confidence in you, the Word, who became flesh and dwelt among us. No other God in, other, in any other religion has gone to this extreme. No other God would become man. It's too radical. It's too beautiful. It's too brilliant. We can't conceive of the things, the, the word becoming flesh and dwelt among, like, Lord, I, I struggle to understand the, the wisdom and the beauty and the depth and the height of that truth. And yet, by your Holy Spirit, you've saved me. You've saved the men and women in this room to, to hear and read and receive person of Jesus. And so I pray that we would have confidence in you, confidence in the proclamation that you are God, that you have saved, and that you will come again. But loving hearts enthrone him, it's the, the song says. Um, man, Lord, make my heart a loving one. And would you dwell on the throne of my heart for all my days? I, I, I pray that that would be more true every day. In your name I pray.